Well, hello all, The Caretaker here. As we wrap up 2020, and we can't do that soon enough, I thought it would be fun to end the year by going back to the beginning of the Graveyard Show podcast. So what you're about to hear is the original unedited version of Graveyard Show podcast number one, which aired on January 1st, 2009. It features my interview with Jack Messett, the co-writer and director of the film Midnight Movie. Now, the director's cut of the film is currently streaming on Amazon Prime if you'd like to see it. What's interesting to note is that this was the only sit-down interview I've ever done with any of my guests who have appeared on the Graveyard Show podcast. So here it is in all of its glory, Graveyard Show podcast number one. I hope you enjoy it. Podcast number one, January 1st, 2009. Hi, this is Jack Messett, director of Midnight Movie. Uh, you can hear me on Graveyard Show Podcast, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Graveyard. Welcome everyone to the Graveyard Show podcast. I'd like to wish everyone a very happy and healthy 2009. Ironically, podcast is launching on New Year's Day. It was not originally planned, but it just kind of happened that way. I am your caretaker here in the Graveyard. Graveyard Show podcast will be available every week, Thursday night, midnight Eastern, 9 p.m. Pacific. Just go on to uh, the website graveyardshow.com and the podcast will be there. You can either listen to it on the website or you can download it and drop it on your iPod or any other MP3 player you may have and you can listen to it at your leisure. Uh, it will be a weekly podcast and it's basically all things horror. Anything that has to do with the horror genre I will be talking about on this podcast, whether it's film, television, books, music, festivals, anything. I also invite you to send me emails. The email address is caretaker at graveyardshow.com. That's caretaker at graveyardshow.com. I welcome uh, your thoughts. If you have any suggestions, if you have any comments, uh, please feel free to send them to me at caretaker at graveyardshow.com. As you heard at the top of the show, Jack Messett, who is the director and co-writer of Midnight Movie, will be joining me. His film, Midnight Movie, will be out on DVD this coming Tuesday, January 6th. It's available for purchase, available for rental. There is also a, uh, a website for the movie. It is midnightmovie.com, midnightmovie.com. And I do have a link on my website that you can just click and it'll take you right to it. It's a great interactive website that gives you cast and crew information, as well as uh, behind the scenes information, trailers, all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, you should definitely check it out. I really encourage on this website to support independent filmmakers, especially in the horror genre. I really want to encourage anyone out there who either has an independent project, anyone who has a film that's completed, anyone who is looking to try to get promotion for their independent projects, please feel free to email me and let me know. And I'll do whatever I can to try to get the word out. Um, whether it's a film or a book or anything along those lines. Because there are a lot of projects, there's, there are a lot of products out there, and uh, it's really easy to get lost. So if you do have a project and um, 
please feel free to email me. Just put on the email subject line that it is a uh, independent project or something along those lines so it can catch my attention. The graveyard is open for business and there's nothing but green grass all around. However, if you listen closely, you'll hear my workers in the background getting my very first plot ready. This is going to be for my first guest. Jack Messett is the director and co-writer of Midnight Movie, which will be released on DVD uh, this Tuesday, January 6th. Uh, Midnight Movie uh, won two awards at the Chicago Horror Film Festival back in September of 2008. It won Best Cinematography and the Jury Award for Best Feature Film. This is Jack's directorial debut and his background is uh, director of photography and camera operator and some of his credits include American Idol, Bones, and The Amazing Race. And Jack is sitting three feet away from me right now, and he joins me in the graveyard. Thanks for being here, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Keeping in tune with Amazing, I want to read a couple of quick uh, reviews of your movie that, um, that are on your site. Some of them are, are on your site, and some I came across. Um, the Star Tribune of Minneapolis, St. Paul says, uh, the film delivers 80 minutes of jokes, jolts, and jumps, and the technical specs are sharp. Dread Central calls Midnight Movie a gory and fast-paced good time. MovieWeb.com says Midnight Movie is a true modern-day horror classic. And Fangoria says Messit and company are clearly working hard to make a solid product instead of just exploiting the genre for a quick cash-in. So with all that, having done the screenings, DVDs about ready to come out, what are your emotions right now? Uh, well, I'm really just excited that it's going to finally really get out there. Uh, we had a limited theatrical run, uh, but it was really it was 10 cities, which is awesome. But uh, it, certainly everybody couldn't get to those 10 cities. So uh, for me, just, you know, with as well as it's been received, to get it out to everybody is really, that's the exciting part for me. For those few people that really don't know what Midnight Movie is about, why don't you tell us what the synopsis is? Uh, Midnight Movie is uh, basically about a group of kids that go to a midnight showing of this uh, old black and white horror film uh, and what they don't know is that the director of the film uh, that failed miserably in its own time found a way to finally make his film scary by enshrining his soul into the film. So it allows the killer in his film to come out and start stalking those in the theater. This was not a script that you had originally written. This is a project that you had come aboard or you came into as it, as when it was still in the pre-production stages or still in the script stages? Yeah, it was, uh, the script had already been greenlit by okay. Bigfoot Entertainment and uh, they were, they had lost their director uh, because of, uh, he's had to step away for some reason and when they started searching again, uh, I read the script and, you know, really thought the script could could be much better I, and uh, so I went in and just pitched my ideas of what I would do to change it really yeah. and instead of going in and saying oh I love it I love it I love it I said really I think you're missing the mark here and they called me a few days later and said you're the guy for the job. On the website you have a director's blog and on it you had mentioned that that story you'd written about that story and 
Uh, you said that it did take them a few days to get back to you. The question is, were you sweating it? And did you think that maybe you made a mistake by being so honest? Or did you feel like you, you did the right thing? I've been a director of photography for a long time. So it was already um, going to be a leap of faith for them to tap me for this anyway. Uh, and my philosophy, even as a DP, when I go in and have interviews about, about shooting something, is to give them my honest take about whatever they're doing. And, you know, as a DP, they say, well, what do you think, you know, what, what are your thoughts? And I say, this is what I think it should look like before knowing what they think it should look like. And to me, if they match up, it's going to be a good pairing. And if they don't, it's either I really have to change my philosophy of what this film is or, you know, we just don't do it. Roughly about how long do you, do you remember taking you to rework the script? And is there anything that you can tell us that, that either you needed to change or maybe what you did what you brought to the script? Uh, I think I signed on to the script in July, and I worked with the uh, original screenplay writer, Mark Garbett. And uh, one of the biggest things that, that I thought needed to happen was, was with the movie in the movie. And it's called The Dark Beneath Now, but at the time, it was this kind of mishmash of images, kind of like The Ring. Mm -hmm. And I felt that any, anybody who goes into a movie and sits there for maybe two, three minutes and sees this just mishmash of nothing, you know, even if it's kind of weird and odd and scary, after a couple of minutes, you're going to like, all right, well, this is going nowhere and I'm, I'm out of here. And so I didn't think the movie in the movie could sustain itself. And so we started working on basically writing a whole new movie. And uh, we ran through a bunch of different uh, eras of horror. And uh, for a good while, we were running with like a 1930s kind of thing. And then I just kind of sat back and thought, it, it's like 1930s is... Like, those kind of movies are not scary to audiences today. But uh, movies like from the late 60s, early 70s, I think still really hold up today. So uh, I, I broke away from, from working with Mark for a little while and basically revamped the movie in the movie to you know, incorporate a little bit more of that feel. And then, so The Dark Beneath was, was basically born. Did you find it hard doing the movie within a movie plot line? Was it difficult? at all or did it kind of just come naturally for you? The movie in the movie was was really kind of a lot of fun. I mean, because you only see bits and pieces of it, so you can take great leaps in what happens from A to B kind of a thing. And, and so uh, I wanted it to have the feel of like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and I wanted it to feel very different than like Midnight Movie as a whole. I wanted, when that came to the screen, I wanted everybody to instantly know, okay, you're watching the movie in the movie. So that's, that's why we did black and white. Um, it's also, uh, a fairly static uh, movie, meaning that the, the camera's locked on, whereas the rest of the movie is handheld. Um, so there's, there's that feel as well. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was a lot of fun. And, and you know, when it came to actually shooting uh, the movie in the movie, it was really such a small portion of our shooting schedule. Um, we basically shot the movie in the movie in about a day and a half. So it, to me, it kind of had more of that feel of what it would have been in the 60s on a run and gun kind of thing. It's like it was, it was pretty minimal as far as coverage and, and, and things like that. On the website, midnightmovie.com, for those of you that don't know it, you did write an interesting story about how you created the weapon for the killer. For those that don't know what the weapon is, can you, can you describe what it is and then can you tell a story about how you created it? Sure. Uh, the weapon is, is a... Uh, Basically, it's a corkscrew knife, and uh, the the origins of it, uh, as I said earlier, when we were going through all the different eras of, of horror films for the movie and the movie, uh, that would, in essence, uh, give the killer whatever weapon he's going to have, and I needed, I wanted it to tie into the movie, uh, in the movie. So um, 
when we were in the 1930s kind of theme, he had a fire poker, and then we ran with that for a little while, but ultimately it wasn't, it wasn't all that scary, and it felt like it would sort of been done before, even though I'm not sure it has. Uh, but basically everything under the sun's been used to kill people in movies. In horror movies, it's, yes. you know, the, you know, you've got the, you know, the 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 machete, yeah. the the Chainsaw, axe, the, 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 yeah, you name everything. it. It's been done. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I wanted this, something to just really stand out and be a signature for Midnight Movie itself. And so you know, when we when we updated it to a 60s, 70s, I kind of like started working, you know, from scratch again to find a weapon. And it was really difficult. And uh, then one day, one of the producers, Jacques, had emailed me and said, well, how about a corkscrew knife? And it's when it dawned on me. I'd written a serial killer novel when I was in college. And it, he, the, the guy in the, in the movie had this uh, basically metal cone that he would, uh, with a sharp point that he would puncture into somebody's chest. And then the outside of the cone was this razor sharp uh, edging that as he pulled it out would basically slice as it came out. So he'd have this big plug of flesh. So what I did was I took Jacques' idea of a corkscrew knife and I, you know, incorporated it into this idea that was already 15 years old, but, you know, really had never been seen. Now, uh, the movie within the movie, uh, The Dark Beneath, was done in black and white, and it's more of an homage to the 60s and 70s. Um, Midnight movie obviously shot in color, and it certainly has a feel of an 80s slasher movie. Um, did you feel an influence from 80s slasher movies, and um, were you concerned that maybe you might get caught in the copycat mode of, of an 80s slasher film? Well, it was certainly influenced by the 80s slashers. I mean, I think when, when you see it, it's, I mean, that's pretty evident. But uh, I wanted it to have the fun feel of the 80s slasher films, which I think uh, the movies in our theaters today have kind of gotten away from that, uh, especially in this Saw, you know, yeah. and torture kind of genre. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I really wanted to do something that was, you know, I mean, I grew up on the 80s slasher film, so I, it was just, I wanted to get back to, to fun horror, but at the same time, I didn't want it to be, you know, campy ridiculous. I wanted it to have a, a bit of an edge that, you know, that I thought those films had for me at the time. You know, even though looking back, they might not be as, as quite as scary as I remember, but, you know, really those guys are, those are the iconic images when you, when you think about horror films. Sure. So now the script gets greenlit, everything's a go. Uh, you walk into um, pre-production and you go into a casting session as a first-time director. What was it like? Well, casting for this film was very interesting because we're a non-SAG film. And uh, while we're in Los Angeles with tons of actors, that still limited our pool significantly on, on who you know, we could cast. And uh, so what we were doing is we're looking for the diamonds out there that haven't been discovered. And I think we found you know a ton of them it was it was so much fun to you know give people pages to read from and to see these characters brought to life and and the people that we cast really embodied exactly who was in the script it was it was really a great experience and how long of a shooting schedule did you have uh, we shot for 21 days which is you know it it's it's not a lot of time you know especially with a horror film where you're dealing with you know major effects on set and you know gallons of blood and you know in addition to uh, the fact that it's not like a talky film, there's very few scenes where people are just sitting around. Yet, yeah, you know, so it's it's you know that the pace of it is very quick, and in doing so, uh, there's a lot of a lot of scenes to cover. Did you find yourself doing a lot more rehearsing, or were you trying to just get as much in the can as you could? You know, it's a bit of both. I think we rehearsed. Uh, 
kind of the, the scenes or shots that needed rehearsing. But uh, again, with that short of a shooting schedule, we didn't have time to do you know, a ton of rehearsing on the set. Uh, we did a bit before, I mean, I had meetings with all of our actors before, but really the casting wasn't set until about 10 days before we started shooting, so there wasn't a ton of time for that either. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're working on that kind of schedule, uh, at our budget, you have time to do, you know, each kind of effect once, maybe twice. But, you know, it's kind of one of those, you know, when you have, when, when you have a, an explosion of blood, it gets all over the room and it's going to take an hour or so to clean it up to do it again and, and you look at the, your watch and you say okay I guess we're going to live with that one you know and or if it was horrible you'd say okay let's do it again and, and kind of start sweating because there you just lost an hour sure your first day on the set did you uh, did you lose a lot of sleep the night before or were you constantly running through things and what was it what was day one what was shooting? day one was actually the very end of the movie um, uh, it's a kind of a chase sequence between the killer and, and uh, and the remaining characters without giving too much away. And uh, it, it's, it was done that way purely because those were the two, you know, we had two days where we could be out on the location ranch. And, uh, you know, so it was like, you hate to start with the end because you'd like to, the actors to be able to kind of figure out who their characters are before you see them in, in the ultimate peril kind of thing. But, you know, the actors really, uh, they, they, they stepped up and, and I, you know, I think it shows. Did you find yourself shooting scenes differently than you originally envisioned them, either as either, when you were writing the script? You know, as you write the script, you kind of have a movie in your head, as, and and then you get to location, and that movie changes a bit to to the actual place that you're going to be shooting, and. Uh, you know, you, you also have scenes in your head that are just huge, and then you start realizing, okay, I've got six hours to shoot this scene, okay, it can no longer be huge, so how do I compress it and still make it effective? And, you know, I look at Midnight Movie and, and I'm really happy with the way it turned out, but at the same time, there were, there were big sequences that you just, we didn't have the time or budget to shoot them. So you, you would hope that, you know, in, in a sequel situation or something like that, uh, that we have a little bit more budget, a little bit more time, so uh, we can make those sequences, you know, everything that I imagine. What kind of hours were you limited to a certain amount of hours every day shooting, or did you guys just try to get everything done? Uh, it was a bit of both. I think uh, we tried to limit it to about 12 hours, you know, of shooting a day. Which is not a lot of time. It's not a lot of time, especially when you add lunch in there and, sure. you know, this, that, and the other. It's, it's not a long shooting day. I, I know that we went to 14 or probably a 16-hour day in there somewhere. Uh, but for the most part, we stayed to our 12-hour schedule because, you know, we're low-budget film and... You know, like overtime is expensive. Wow. Well, for those those that are looking at getting in the industry, you'll find out soon enough uh, what a 12-hour day is like versus a 20-hour day. Trying to trying to cram in eight pages a day, I would probably be about seven pages a day, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's about right. And, uh, you know, some days you do less than that, obviously, because you have big effects or things like that. And some days you do a lot more. And uh, I know we had two days... Uh, in, in the movie theater itself where everybody's kind of watching the movie and we cranked out, we had two cameras running and cranked out just, you know, as much dialogue as possible, you know, in those two days so we had time, you know, to do the kills the way they're supposed to be done because the kills always take more time. With the movie screen, how did you do that? You know, that was one of the big technical issues uh, in pre-production is how we're going to do it. And uh, green screen was an issue. Uh, uh, we thought about green screen. We thought about blue screen. Um, we thought about actually projecting the movie in the movie. Uh, but since we started 
basically shooting the movie in the movie in the end sequence, we didn't have time to get any of that printed and all and edited and everything by the time we were in the theater. So uh, basically what we did was co called a luminance key and we've got this big white screen and we just blew it out with, you know, really, you know, bright lights and we're able to kind of go in and, and cut it out later. Having worked on sets, I, I know that um, green screen and blue screen are very light sensitive in terms of you have to light it right to, for it to work right. Was it the same way with that where you constantly... It actually, uh, it was the best solution for us because not only were we able to uh, get something that we could cut out easily later, uh, but it also served as, as a, uh, a lighting source for us that was a really organic mm -hmm. uh, lighting source. So when you see everybody lit in the audience, they're basically lit by, our, by the screen itself, as wow. they would be in the theater. It's also a great time saver. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really, it, it couldn't have worked go. out better. My, yeah. My, yeah. Wow. My, I had two DPs on it in the, uh, because of the shutdown, okay. uh, but uh, the first DP, Clyde Smith, and I, when we came up with that... Uh, that decision, it was really, it worked out perfectly wow. for, for us. Do you think your experience as a DP really helped you work a set as the director? Do you think it really kind of, you came into it already having had set experience as a crew member, and the DP obviously is a very important position, but now when you move up to director, now you have a lot to undertake. Do you think that that really did help you in a scenario like this of directing a horror movie on a very short, uh, schedule, budget crunch, the whole thing. Well, I think my experience as a DP, it made me prepare in a way that some other directors may not. Uh, and it also, I wasn't afraid of anything technical. So, uh, you know, having those discussions with with the effects guys, both the onset guys and the post guys, um, like they knew I knew what I was asking for. They knew I knew what I was, you know, uh, what I was talking about. And I could have conversations with them that, um, we didn't have to go through, you know, mm -hmm. effects 101 in order to have these conversations. We could already be talking at a level that, uh, you know, uh, that saved a lot of time. Sure. Um, and, you know, again, the onset experience was not new to me. So that first, first day of, you know, wide-eyed director going, oh, how do I start? Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing is, you know, everyone looking at you again, you know, and saying, okay, what are we doing? And then it's just about saying, all right. This is my list of shots. You know, I, I'm not a huge storyboarder outside of the action sequences, um, but I, I, I shot list everything. So I know that this particular scene is most likely going to have three or four shots, and so it helps us schedule things and, and you know, make our day in a way that, you know, some directors might not be as prepared to do. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, even in, in scheduling, it's like, uh, I know how much time X amount, of, you know, X amount of shots are going to take, and and I knew when I asked my DPs, you know, for this particular shot, I, I knew what I was asking for. I sure. knew the time it was going to take, and if it was going to be kind of an expensive shot, meaning it was going to be a, a big, you know, time eater, I, I knew it going in, and then I could then make choices later, saying, all right, I know this is an expensive shot, and we're we don't have the time for it, so. I'll cut this one, add this small one, and then we'll be able to leave the scene and have what we need. Having a background as a, as a DP, so you had two DPs plus yourself, so three DPs that were working on this film. Did you find yourself, as the director, finding yourself gravitating towards the camera like you would as a DP, or were you just so busy with everything that was going on, did you just say, I'm not even gonna get, I don't even have to worry about that? 
Well, when I was initially tapped for the project, everyone asked me, I mean, because my friends know I'm a, I'm a cameraman, so they said, are you going to shoot it in, as well? And I, I said, you know, listen, being a DP and being a director, they're both full-time jobs, and you can't do them both, and do them both justice. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, so, really on set, I was really particular about, you know, the, the, t the basic coverage that we were talking about and, and, and whatnot, but again, with the collaborative effort, it's like, you say this is this is what I'm looking for, and then you walk away, start working with the actors or looking at props or whatever you know the thousands of other things that you have to do, and they take your idea and they run with it. And uh, you know, again, they made my ideas much better. And, and my camera operator, uh, Greg Collier, did an awesome job with again taking the frames that I would describe and just and you know adding his own ideas to them and just making them better it was it was a lot of fun having won the Chicago uh, Horror Film Festival award for best cinematography service is a lot too yeah and you know again as a as a dp you know it really that was that meant a lot more than than most for probably for most directors mm -hmm. you know because uh, we really wanted our movie, we were a low budget movie, but we wanted it to feel like a bigger budget movie. And uh, so we shot 35 millimeter, uh, and you know, we, we tried to do everything the right way and, mm -hmm. and, and put all the money that we had up on the screen. And, and that was, you know. Well, that was the interesting thing about what I read on Fangoria's review of the film. They, the last thing that they had said when Jack Messick gets a big budget, watch out. Yeah, I mean, it's been really flattering, especially uh, with all the, the, the comments about the technical. And, and again, a small movie, but we tried to do everything the right way. We, we did our, uh, our post effects at Pixel Magic, who did 300. Okay. And, uh, you know, again, we wanted every dollar that we spent to make it to the screen. And, and you know, in, in making those choices, you know, yeah. you know, people have seen the difference. No, you, you were smart. You, you, put, you put the budget on screen as opposed to a lot of movies that a lot of the money goes to the behind the scenes. And yeah, well, it didn't go it. in my pocket, I'll tell you that. So, you know, <laughs> so maybe the next one, but, uh, but yeah, my, my salary was small, so we could, so we could, so you, you could know. get it done, yeah, exactly. Exactly. The special effects department, can you discuss your relationship with the effects department and uh, can you also give some advice to the young filmmakers out there so when they do get into, uh, when they are finally working as a professional director, what they need to do in order to convey what they look for, what they're looking for? Well, our on-set effects were done by uh, Lunar Effects and Brian Hicks uh, was the, the head of that. Uh, and uh, the thing about effects is that they're, they eat time like you wouldn't believe. And in order to kind of make the most of your time, you have to be really well prepared. So uh, well into pre, you know, early pre-production, I'd storyboarded out every sequence that we killed somebody in. And um, so I knew exactly what angles I was shooting. So then I can go to Brian and say, it needs to work from this angle. You know, it doesn't have to work from this angle. And so you design the effects for exactly how we were going to shoot it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that saved a tremendous amount of time because if you weren't as specific and you got on set and you're kind of like, okay, well, I want to be here. And then you look and you're like, I've got tubes all over the place yep. or I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing the gag. And, yep. and, you know, because we were so prepared ahead of time, you know, again, the, the shots that we had planned for worked because sure. we built these, uh, you know, the, all the prosthetics or whatever to, to work for the, the shots that we wanted. Staying with the effects. Were you conscious of the violence and the gore? It's one thing to write it, it's another thing to see it and do it. Were you conscious of saying, maybe this is too much, maybe this is not enough, walking that fine line? Because I have to say, 
there is there are payoffs on this movie, but it's certainly not what I've seen in a lot of contemporary movies where it's all gore all the time, blood everywhere. It's done to pay off, but it's also done respectfully too. You, you walk both lines. Yeah, it was, we, were, uh, we were very conscious about the gore level in the night movie and uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, I didn't want it to be, I mean, there's been a lot of movies out there where like the first kill you see is, is at such a level that you're like, well, how do I top this one? And they constantly try to top it throughout the movie and yet it, it's basically a plateau. And I wanted Midnight Movie to have a nice rise with the kills. So as the movie went on, the kills got bigger and bigger and you know, more satisfying. So uh, the other way that helped us was that because of our budget, we couldn't do every kill you know, in this huge marquee way. So uh, it, it's just you don't have the time or the money. And what, we, what, what I devised was that we would set up the movie kind of like the history of horror. And in the very beginning, you basically see uh, before a massacre and after, but you don't see the massacre itself. And then with, with each successive kill, as the history of horror kind of goes on, you, you basically got a little bit more gory and a little bit more gory. And you know, a, a, up until the point of like today's films, and, and we, we do touch on a little bit of the torture thing at, you know, toward the end of the film. Uh, and, uh, but oddly enough, that particular scene has the least amount of gore, I think, out of any of them, but is, to me, one of the more, you know, kind of hide your eyes, you know, bury your head in your, in your boyfriend's shoulder kind of moments, and yet, you know, if you're watching it, there, there's very little gore, but it feels like you see everything, and, and to me, that's the power that a lot of filmmakers aren't using today. You know, what you don't see and what your brain fills in the blanks for is much more terrifying than anything that we could actually come up with to show you. Sure. See, uh, again, going back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, people think that it's a bloody movie. In reality, it's really not. It's, it's intense like Midnight Movie is. And that's one of the things that uh, stuck out in my mind was um, the intensity of when the killer is there. Not only is he scary as hell with that mask that he wears, but one of the things I think that you did that was so effective was that the movie wasn't cut in a quick in a quick music video way and when you're with the killer you're in a confined and you keep the camera on him and you see him and you're there you're with the characters trying to get away from him and he is like a Michael Myers or a Jason where he's coming 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 and you can't get away can you discuss why you, you did shoot it that way and not the other way where it's quick cuts? You know, again, I think in, in the style of more of the, the 80s slashers, and I think what made them terrifying is that they were kind of like that constant presence that would just lumber constantly toward you, and you just couldn't get away from them. Whereas if you do this really quick cutty kind of thing, it's like it feels more like a trick. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, you know, we, we, I had a few sequences planned where you'd see the killer and he would just disappear and come up behind someone else. And, and, uh, and, and unfortunately, those were cut more uh, because of time restrictions than anything else. But we had the luxury with, with our killer because he's a bit supernatural to kind of appear and disappear at will. And um, as he does this, as when he appears and he's, and he's lumbering toward you, it's like, how do you get away from this guy? He's just this, this locomotive that is constantly just going toward you. What was the energy like with the actors on set? Being on set with all these actors was really a lot of fun because 
there were so many characters, and I mean, you know, yeah. actors, these guys were characters, you know, uh, and, and it was a lot of fun to be with them, and, uh, you know, I really wish I had more time to just kind of kick around with them, because we were, we had so much to do in our days, they, they really bonded together, you know, offset, because when you're killing somebody, everyone else kind of has time to, to sit and mill around. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't have as much of that time as yeah. I would have liked. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, we had a great group of actors that I, I, you know, I can't wait to work with again. Now, were you able to have a video village on this, or was it so you were able to actually have a monitor section where you could sit and... Yeah, we, I mean, it. we had a video village, but, you know, we were shooting film, so it's not like when you're shooting video, you don't see it exactly how yeah. it's going to be. It's kind of this scratchy, mm -hmm. you know, it's in color, but not a great image sure. you know and it basically it's just there to judge framing and yeah. and whatnot and and, and I'm, I'm a big believer of you know getting away from video village when yeah. you know when you can you know if you're not looking at okay what's this effect going to be but when you're dealing with you know uh, more of an emotional scene is mm -hmm. getting right by the camera getting away from that sure. so so you can really feel what the actors are giving you it is interesting because that was, was going to be my follow-up question because i think a lot of directors nowadays uh, find use that as a crutch and just a lot of them just stay there and don't move. And so, basically, in your in your situation, you were on set. You were next to the camera for for most of it. Yeah, and I also I try to get Video Village as close to the action as sure. possible. Yeah. Because uh, there's nothing worse than you know screaming three rooms away. No, no, move your head left. You know, or whatever. <laughs> it's like it just totally takes the actors out of the moment. So sure. You know, even if I was watching at Video Village when I had notes, it's like I got up and always went in and talked to them. You know, and you know, face to face, because that's to keep that emotional bond, you know, between the actor and and their character uh, is really important. And, and mm -hmm. again, the, the shouting from from a hundred yards away just it breaks that completely. Yeah, yeah. So after production, did you kind of sit back after principal was after principal and just say to yourself, "Wow, I I was prepared for X, but I wasn't prepared for Y." What, well, what, did you, what did you learn from this experience, I guess? is Yeah, uh, making a movie, uh, I mean, I've been through the production experience a lot as a DP. As a director, the biggest difference is that everybody's looking to you for the answers. As a DP, you always, you know, you throw ideas out, but ultimately it's someone else's, you know, choice on what, what gets done. Uh, whereas this, everyone was throwing the questions at me, and it... It was emotionally draining because you're constantly having to either come up with ideas or, or you know, you know, like everyone's looking to you. Once once we finished shooting, I went to Spain for about two and a half weeks and tried to decompress a little bit uh, to Spain and, and southern France, and then uh, we posted uh, in in the Philippines because uh, that's where we are investors mm -hmm. from, and. Uh, we, uh, I basically jumped right in the editing room, was there for about five weeks, and came away with a cut. Um, and we did a bunch of test screenings, okay. and uh, got some feedback on what was working, what wasn't. Uh, that was very helpful. Uh, and a lot of times you know what's not working, and yet mm -hmm. you kind of want confirmation that it's not working, and sure. you get it. And, and then we did one additional shooting day where I kind of got some, some of the gravy for the film. You know, it's like things were working, but I, I, I was missing a beat or two here or there. And so uh, we didn't reshoot anything, but we just shot some additional scenes. And uh, I think having, you know, the, the cut and seeing it with the test audience and then going back and being able to pick up some things that I, I felt were missing was, you know, it was really lucky that we had kind of saved the money in order to do it. Mm -hmm. and uh, and. Because we're a low budget, everyone goes, well, why didn't you just shoot HD? 
you know and my my answer to that is one i wanted it to have a bigger look than that mm -hmm. and the look that we got you just you can't get on hd mm -hmm. You know, unless it's even maybe one of the high-end HDs now, yeah. uh, you know, because there's some there's some really decent-looking HD cameras, but that it, would, it, it wouldn't have saved anything sure. money-wise. Yeah. Now, uh, Bigfoot financed the film, but you need to get a distributor. One of the terms I'm sure uh, people have heard is negative pickup. Can you describe what that is for for those that don't? You know, after after you go through the you know the pain and suffering of, of making your movie and you finally have it where you you want to show it to an audience and you think it's done uh, we had a distributor screening so we packed a theater of about 400 people and including like I don't know 25 distributors and basically just watched the movie with them and at the end of the film you kind of look at them and say you know do you like it are you interested and, and we got a really nice response of people that you know wanted to bring the screeners back to uh, their company and show it to other people and then you kind of wait for offers to come in and and then decipher okay which one's going to be best for you know for getting the movie out there and for you know the, you know, monetarily well, what's sure. going to work for you sure. um, and you know we got you know we partnered up with Peace Arch and, and they've been absolutely wonderful and you know the DVD comes out January 6th yes, so I, I think we've done all right. You were able to do some limited uh, uh, screenings how did those go? Uh, the theatrical screenings in in, uh, in November went really well, mm -hmm. and uh, you know we're a small movie, so uh, you know getting the word out about the movie was really important to us. And no better way to see this film than with a big audience in a theater. And uh, and Bigfoot was really great about helping us, you know, get this distribution and uh, and get the word out. And and I w they were all very pleased with, with how it went, and, and I think that just helped with the, you know, create a little bit more buzz about the movie, and, yeah. and hopefully, you know, everyone who, who went and saw it's gonna, gonna now purchase it. And I'd mentioned at the top that Midnight Movie won two awards at the Chicago Horror Film Festival uh, for Best Cinematography, and, and the big one was the uh, Best Picture. Had to have been special for you, being from there. What was that like? Yeah, it, you know, we debuted there really. We had our distributor screening, but this was, uh, you know, basically our big premiere. And uh, I, for me to have it in Chicago was absolutely awesome because I'm from there. Uh, you know, my family and a bunch of friends were able to come. And uh, then when you know, when we won Best Cinematography, it was you know, as a DP, it meant a ton to me. But then winning you know Best Feature Film, you know, I couldn't have dreamed of a better way to start. Uh, you know, showing this film than that, and, and you know, I, I'm still shocked. I mean, it was it was really it was a lot of fun, and and uh, you know, I, I I owe a lot to those guys and uh, and, and helping get the word out about the film. Where's the award? Uh, actually, it's awards in, in my office right now, and excellent. It, it's uh, it's being displayed proudly. Great, as it should be. Uh, for the DVD release, um, for those that are uh, that can't wait to get it, and those that are interested in seeing it, will it be any extras? Yeah, there's a ton of extras on it, and. Uh, I was really, I had a really big hand in how these extras were put together, and I didn't want it to be some fluffy thing that's basically another trailer. I wanted it to really be a behind the scenes of, you know, how we did things, and even though we were on a, a low budget, it's like how the effects were done, especially the, the, the post effects with Pixel Magic, you know, you really get to see the before and you get to see after, and, and like the luminance key on the, on the movie screen, you'll see what the actors were really looking at, and, and wow. you know, things like that. And, 
you know, because I wanted it to be a cool experience and I wanted it to be something that when they click on it and watch it, that it's something that they felt like they got something out of it. Sure. And, uh, and I, there's about, I think there's, you know, 30, 40 minutes of, of these behind the scenes, but they're all, you know, informative quality. And, and yeah. quality stuff. Which is great, because again, for the kids that are in college and high school that are looking to get involved in, in professional filmmaking, that's what I, I, I would have wanted to have seen when D, if DVDs were available back then, back in the Stone Ages. Yeah, well, I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, reading, you know, Fangoria or, or you know, Starlog or one of the other magazines about, about movies at the time. And, and, you know, I always craved the behind the scenes of how did you really do something? And, and you know, I, I don't want to bust every myth out there, but at the same time, I want to, want to give people something that's worth watching. Are there any plans for a sequel? Uh, you know, the, the plans for the sequel all depend on how well, you know, the original does. Okay. And uh, while it's gotten a lot of acclaim, we'll, you know, we'll see if people are buying it. And hopefully everyone does get out and buy it and, and we can do another. Because I think, you know, the possibilities of what we can do with this are really, I mean, they're wide open. And if we could get, you know, the same or, or a bit bigger budget, you know, to really do it some justice, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Back before you were doing this professionally, I remember reading something that you talked about in terms of you had watched, I believe it was Psycho on TV, and how it really left an influence on you. Can you tell me about that? Well, you know, I remember being at home and I, I think it's WGN or somebody was playing Psycho and I started watching it because it starts off pretty innocuous and you think it's this uh, little caper movie where this woman steals this money and and then my mom comes in, you know, as I'm watching it, and she's driving away with the money, and you're like, oh, she sees the boss, and you're like, oh, and, you know, I'm thinking it's, you know, I, I don't know what this is yet, and my mom's like, this is a scary movie, you know, are you sure you're going to want to watch this? And I was just like, oh, yeah, come on, you know, and she's like, okay. So, you know, the lights are off, and everyone's in bed, except for me, and, you know, then the movie takes a, a total turn, and things become... I mean, it really, especially for its time and when you're, I don't sure. know, 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever I was, you know, it, that's a movie that holds up, you know, even today. So, uh, you know, that experience has never left me. And, you know, the, the creepiness of sitting on your couch in, in a house that, you know, five other people are sleeping in and, and yet you're sitting there just shivering and looking around and the house creaks and you're kind of like, what's going on? You know, that's the experience that I wanted to impart upon Midnight Movie, you know, because that's, that's what I remember, you know, from my experience. He is Jack Messett. He is the director and co-writer of Midnight Movie, coming to DVD January 6th, uh, this coming Tuesday. If you haven't seen it, you have to go rent it, buy it, get out there and support this movie. It is definitely worth your time. And I'd like to thank Jack for joining me in the graveyard. Well, thank you so much. And as I put this interview to rest, I would like to once again thank Jack for joining me in the graveyard. His film, Midnight Movie, comes out on DVD this Tuesday, January 6th. Please support your independent filmmaker. And I also invite you to send me your emails. That is caretaker at graveyardshow.com. Caretaker at graveyardshow.com. Please send me your thoughts, your comments, and I will definitely take a look at them. And who knows, maybe some of them will even get on the air. And as you exit the graveyard, I would just like to remind you of one thing. Please, lock the gate behind you. We wouldn't want anyone to get out. Until next time. <laughs>